I'm Jeff Cook. And I'm TJ Wilson. And this is Around the Circle. I'm walking slowly. I'm taking my time. All I could talk in is starting to run. I'm letting go lonely, letting go strife. I just can't get enough of this beautiful life. The Enneagram is a map of the human personality. It's a tool for navigating relationships. It creates language for what motivates us and helps us look at the way we look at everything else. Most importantly, the Enneagram is a mirror because sometimes you need help seeing yourself. My name is Jeff Cook. I teach philosophy in Greeley, Colorado, and with me is TJ Wilson, businessman, lover of theology, and Enneagram ninja. Hello. My man. Hello. Good morning. We're with one of our favorite people in the world today. Yes. The great Suzanne Stabile has joined us again. Welcome back, Suzanne. Good to be here. I like being a favorite, so I'm all in. Well earned in our view. We're talking about the head triad today, but to get into this, we haven't gotten a chance to hear about your COVID experience and not COVID, not that you got COVID, but that you had to endure like the rest of us. Uh, On the positive side, do you have anything you're taking away from this year? Like a practice, a habit, something that you're keeping from this year that you learned? Uh, yeah, I do. Um, I'm very aware of my need to teach. And when you get to be my age, people start asking you how long you're going to teach. And you don't know if that means it sounds like you should give it up or we want more. Right. Uh, you know, I've been at the feet of both kinds of teachers, some who shouldn't be and can't let go and some who have more to say. Sure. So I, I did learn that I get an awful lot of energy from teaching and that what would appear to be restful wasn't. But I also have a big question about whether or not anybody found the, the whole experience of the 18 months to be like restful downtime where we regroup and gear up and learn some new stuff, you know, because we were always waiting for the next announcement. Mm -hmm. And we were caught in uh, a political involvement from every side in medicine. And so now that I look back and Joe and I are both healthy and back doing what we do, then I have regret that I wasn't able to live in the moment enough Mm. to use those moments to rest. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Every plan was about maybe next month, maybe we'll be able to keep this event. Well, let's cancel these two, but let's hold this one. Right. You know, we kept, it's like the line kept moving and we didn't seem to be able to see past the line. Right. But I only know that looking back. Right. Um, I learned that I used to have a much larger one wing than I do now because my three wing kicked in, which kind of causes everything to settle down whenever that happens when you have (laughs) both wings. But, you know, I was writing. I had a manuscript due. So I'm also in my office writing and writing and writing. And rewriting. And I rediscovered that while I don't have a one critic, I'm really hard on myself. Mm. 
and I take blame for things that aren't my fault. And um, yeah, so a lot of awareness about that. And I kind of think that's probably true for twos. To be more specific on learning things, is there anything that you learned about the Enneagram that was fresh and new for you? And obviously, we'll talk about your book in a second, but did COVID uh, unveil anything to you? I think for the heart triad, without engagement, average space or below average space is probably a likely place to hang out. Hmm. I think for the head triad during COVID, um, so one of the things I've been saying that I learned about sixes is when COVID hit, you know, a lot of us were nervous and afraid and had a lot of anxiety and sixes were kind of saying, man, I feel sorry for y'all, but we're prepared for this. We've, <laughs> we've been prepared for this. So don't worry about us, but you look like you're really struggling. Hmm. And one of the things I learned is that sixes were prepared for the pandemic if it was over in a month, but they weren't prepared for 18 months of pandemic mm-hmm. yeah. because nobody is. Right. Yeah. In terms of the gut triad, I learned that they each responded very differently uh, in relationship to anger. Nines resigned themselves to what was you know, had a tendency to. Ones were very judgmental and critical of how things were being handled. And eights were angry that they couldn't affect it being over. Mm. So if I ever write an Enneagram book about the pandemic, (laughs) (laughs) then I guess I'll just run through all nine numbers. And I don't think I'll write that book because I don't think we'll have this experience again for another 50 years at least. And You know, who knows? But I think it was hard for everybody. I think there were lessons to be learned for every personality type. And I think the chances that we learned them are low Mm. because we were in a constant state of expecting it to be over. Yeah. That's a good thought. Uh, Well, again, on the positive side, you yourself have a a book available for pre-order releasing in November 2021. I do. Uh, what, I'm sure there's things you cannot say yet about the book, but is there anything that, that's worth worth saying, making public? Sure. Uh, I sold uh, the book to IVP with an introduction about liminal space before the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Good timing. <laughs> so when the pandemic hit, I thought, uh-oh, I missed it. You know, I'd kind of been sitting on that idea for a while, and I thought, man, I'm, I missed it with this. If I had written the book, and if it was available, then it would that would have been the perfect timing. Mm. But I actually think that since everybody has now lived through some liminality, maybe the timing is better. And maybe there will be a wider and growing, continually growing interest in the Enneagram because the first part of the book is about liminal space. Would, would you define that? And, and what, real quick, what's the name of the book? Uh, the name of the book is The Journey Toward Wholeness. And the subtitle is Enneagram Wisdom for Stress, Balance, and Transformation. Come on. Liminality is 
essentially it is a Greek word, or no, Latin. It might be Latin. I don't know. It's either Latin or Greek. You know, I live with uh, somebody who knows, so I get far too much information about which words are which, and then I don't know because I mostly don't care. But it's either Latin or Greek. I think it's Latin. And it essentially means threshold. And it means when you're not where you were and you're not where you're going. Mm. So when I teach liminality, a good practice is to have somebody stand for five minutes in their home on the threshold between one room and another. Mm. And most people report that they couldn't do it for five minutes because they saw all the things that needed to be done where they were going and they were aware of what had not been done where they were leaving. Mm. And it felt like a place of no consequence, a, a place where there's nothing to do. But if you look into scripture, uh, God is always trying to get us into liminal space. Yeah, good. That's good. That's the goal for what, what happens in that space then for someone who enters it voluntarily or finds it. Sure. I might answer that in just a second, but I want to say one more thing that Richard Rohr taught me. Yeah. And Richard Rohr says that he starts by saying liminality is the most teachable space. And then he follows that with liminality, maybe the only teachable space. Yeah, it's a good word. So um, what'd you ask me? I haven't been with people. Yeah, and I have, I, I got COVID in January. I still, I have like, a, me and a friend, a friend of mine uh, is pregnant. She has pregnancy brain and I have COVID brain and our conversations are hilarious because we yeah. both consistently misstep. <laughs> but, right, okay. um, is it the case that, uh, you talk about going to that space intentionally or is it an act of grace to be pulled into that space or is it both? I think it's both. Yeah. I think uh, a retreat, a silent retreat, a contemplative retreat are all intentional decisions to spend time in liminal space. Yeah. There you go. And I think it's a stance question in the sense that I think the aggressive stance, three, sevens and eights, are anxious to move forward towards something of their own creation, sometimes not taking everything of value with them from the past, sometimes moving too quickly, and often not aware of who's being left behind. Mm. I think ones, twos, and sixes are trapped on the threshold, trying to figure out whether or not to go back or to go forward what to do, whichever way they go, and who else is being affected. And I think the withdrawing stance fours, fives, and nines are uh, inclined to return to the way we used to do things. Hmm. So uh, Joe, my husband Joe, who's a pastor, is a nine on the Enneagram, and um, he has been at the second largest Methodist church, I guess, in the world for the last five years, but in May— after uh, in the United Methodist Church, you have to retire if you're 72. And you guys know that Joe went to high school seminary at 14. Mm -hmm. And um, when he retired, that kind of made him a free agent. He didn't have to be appointed by the bishop. If he wanted to go somewhere, he could see if that church wanted him and go. Yeah. So for the first time, 14 to 73, he never got to choose where he was going to go. Somebody always told him what classes mm -hmm. to take, what language to study, where he was going to go, 
from the Vincentian fathers until he was 40 to the bishop in the cabinet of the United Methodist Church until he was 73. And he chose to uh, apply or talk with the senior pastor about an opening at First Methodist Dallas, downtown. And one of the things that we learned through all of that is that Joe has only been an associate pastor three times in all of his career. And every time the senior pastor was a seven on the Enneagram. And what is happening where he is, is that he has the responsibility for creating peace and comfort for people while the seven tries to negotiate the past, the present, and the future rather than go back to the old way they did worship at the same times they did worship for the same people who were in that worship group, which is what fours, fives, and nines want. And rather than just create something new and throw it in the air and see what happens. And I I don't think I have a wiser thing to say about coming out of liminality than what I'm about to say. I don't think there's such a thing as where we used to be. There isn't something to go back to. Not after 18 months. Too much has changed. And that can't be the option. And just standing still frozen can't be the option. And moving ahead without bringing people and ideas and value from the way it used to be with you is not an option. And so we're going to have to kind of get outside of those tendencies and comfortable responses and work with all nine numbers to figure out how to move forward. And if there's another wisdom tool to assist with that other than the Enneagram, I don't know what it is. Yeah, that's a good plug. Um, one last big thing is you're hosting an event. I don't know if this is your first event, but uh, on August 5th through the 7th, you're, uh, you're doing uh, Breaking the Cycle in Dallas. And uh, you want to you plug that real quick? Sure. Uh, we actually used to do big events all the time. Yeah. And in life in the training ministries. And then we recognized that with the quality of the speakers we were bringing in and the crowd size that we had, that a whole generation of people who want to participate rather than sit at a table and take notes and go home uh, was not drawn to that. Mm. And so we stopped having big events, hoping that we could engage a wider age range and knowing that there was a uh, void of intergenerational conversation going on. And we thought we might be able to meet that if we had smaller events. And this event is uh, not like we used to do a thousand people. This event is not that. Mm-hmm. Um, but what we try to do in August in Texas is uh, get together a larger number of people. It used to be larger. I don't know what's going to happen going forward. I think we'll be just having bigger crowds, but to kind of talk about big ideas and Russ Hudson is going to be teaching with Joe and me. And actually I've taught with Russ several times, but always at another organization's event. And we have spent more time talking over the last few years than previously, just one-on-one with each other, exchanging ideas and building a friendship. And I think there, I know this, there is nobody, nobody, alive right now, who teaches passions and virtues better than Russ Hudson. And I don't know that there ever will be. And um, Joe is going to talk about 
welcoming prayer and that there is a point in any event that feels terrible or scary or punishing or whatever. There is a moment where you can break the cycle that you're always going around and around on in the practice of welcoming prayer. And Joe is going to teach about where, where that occurs. And um, I'm going to talk about stances and the fact that it, welcoming prayer is actually set up around three stance ideas. I don't know if they knew that or not when welcoming prayer was written and created and originally taught. And so I'm going to talk about shame and fear and anger. Mm. And I think it's going to be so great. And it, it, it we, we've never tried to have an event in Dallas and kind of market Dallas as a destination because it's such a, an unusual city <laughs> with no mountains, no water, no, <laughs> no things that people sometimes want to go away for. But we are going to have it at First Methodist Dallas, uh, which is downtown. And downtown Dallas has really revived itself. And Clyde Warren Park is down there. And it's two blocks from the church. And there's a lot of venues for eating and a lot of stuff to do. Uh, it's in the Arts District so we feel like we are bringing people to really fun, interesting space to do some challenging, good Enneagram work and have some time off to be with friends that they came with or friends that they meet while they're here and do some things that kind of give you a break and then get back to the work at hand. We're real excited about it. Wonderful. Well, we're going to be there. Um, some of the guests that we've had on in the past who are experts are going to be there. It should be, uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to this being uh, one, a unique event yeah. for me and my life and, and uh, others' lives and looking forward to it. All right. Well, we are picking up where we left off last time. You are also the senior editor of a book series through InterVarsity. What's the name of the book series? Daily Enneagram Reflections. Nine different books by nine different authors, 40 days on being an X-type. Last time that we had Suzanne on, we talked through the heart triad, twos, threes, and fours, and um, some of the practices that they could surrender, some of the practices they could adopt for a healthier life. And we set up this conversation with a quote uh, from you, Suzanne, in the introduction to all these books in which you said, I hope you'll consider the difference between change and transformation. Change is when we take on something new. Transformation occurs when something old falls away. And that's what we're going to do with talking about the fives, sixes, and sevens today. Um, but first to get into this uh, with each of these types, each of the types come to the Enneagram in a different kind of way. And that's how we've started this conversation is what does it look like for each of the types to come to the Enneagram itself for help, for guidance as a map? Um, when fives come to the Enneagram as a tool, as a map, what what is the best way for fives to come to the Enneagram itself in order to, to help them where they are? I think that everybody is entitled to privacy in relationships. But in successful relationships, it is never okay for the bulk of vulnerability to be on one side of the relationship. And I think if fives can come to Enneagram work recognizing that they're going to have to risk being seen, 
that they're going to have to risk having ideas that they really treasure that other people aren't going to agree with and that they're going to have to risk sharing something that is from the heart in order to get from a relationship the energy that will help it be what it can be. It's just more than understanding that there are nine ways of seeing and that yours is a five and that you're thinking dominant. Uh, It's just more than that. It's a challenge to use the other two centers and the courage to be willing to be participatory in relationship, to be seen, and for there to be some personal exchange. Mm -hmm. What do you hear there, TJ? Well, I, th- I think it also offers a framework for understanding why those things are necessary for fives, which is also a big part of helping them get there. Yeah, I think so too, TJ. And I also think it's essential that fives who are not in the sexual subtype kind of experiment with that a little bit because they're afraid it's going to take energy they don't have. And it actually gives back energy. And it is more holistically energizing than just intellectual exchange. Yeah. Would, would you talk about that for a second? I've never heard this before. Would you talk about fives experiencing energy from relationships? I think that it's real important to recognize that fives are thinking dominant, but feeling supports their thinking. And that means that they have feelings about everything they think, but they're not willing to share feelings with other people because it feels too vulnerable and awkward for them. So they build most relationships around thinking. And actually, fives like to be with other people who are in their field Mm -hmm. so that they can think together about what they spend most of their time thinking about. And the illusion with that is that it's energizing. But the reality is it's informative. And what's energizing is a holistic exchange with other people that involves you being able as a five to manage your feelings if somebody disagrees with you. And generally, if you you disagree with a five's premise about something, then you hurt their feelings and they pull back because feelings are just being used to support thinking. They're not being used for what they're intended for. And that is for personal exchange and heartfelt feelings exchange. You know, one of the things I say to fives is, if you don't tell people what they mean to you, they don't know. And so they are, uh, most numbers, kind of protect themselves from being more vulnerable or as vulnerable as they would choose to be holistically because they feel like their value in the relationship is an exchange of ideas. And honestly, guys, I don't know that I have very many ideas that aren't based on feelings that I had to learn to think about in order to teach Mm -hmm. because I'm feeling dominant. Right. That leaving out one center and primarily using one means that at any given time, all of us are seeing and engaging with one third of what's happening. But fives are socially awkward. They're trying to protect their energy, which increases their awkwardness socially. 
And from that place, unless somebody shows it to them, they can't see that feelings will give you energy rather than just suck energy from you. And that you still get to be in charge of any feeling thing that you're going to share. You don't have to sit down at a group table at an event and share things you don't want to share. But in order to be part of the group, you have to share something. That's a precious resource that they're working hard to protect. Like just like the energy, the, those feelings are, this is something that someone might take from me and then I won't have enough or. Or they won't honor it. You know, fives will never tell your secrets. Mm -hmm. It's very difficult for them to believe that you won't tell theirs. Mm -hmm. Mm. And it's, it's starting to realize this. It's hard to see there, there was a point in my life where I knew so many people that seemed aloof and disconnected. And then learning that they are fives, it's like a switch flipped and I see them in a completely different light. It's not aloofness, it's, it's protection for them. Yeah, you know, and another thing I would say is, and I didn't talk about this in the introductory pieces, but you know, your, your subtype changes. Mm. And I don't think we've even begun to consider coming out of the experience of the 18 months of COVID that has already passed. I don't think we have any idea how many people are emerging with a different subtype. Mm. That's going to be very confusing in relationships. And I Mm -hmm. think very uh, conflictual. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We're in for an interesting ride. (laughs) Yes, we are. And we need tools to get through it without there being more damage than and loss than we've already suffered. Mm. You know, one of the things that happened during this time, guys, I watched person after person say to sixes, are you okay? And to fives, you must be loving this. Mm-hmm. Fives didn't love being quarantined. Right. They love being in control of their time, right. not having it be controlled by something external. Mm-hmm. And so that's just a lack of understanding of the Enneagram. They didn't love it at all. Right. Yeah, it's exposed a lot of the misconceptions about all these types. Mm-hmm. Well, and especially the, if it was just the, a few weeks, some of those things might have been closer to accurate. But the fact that it went on and on and on, we got farther and farther and farther away from that being real. Because, so have you wondered what it would have been like if somebody had said definitively, looks like this is going to last about 18 months. Do the things that you need to do to protect yourself. Mm-hmm. Behave appropriately. And we're looking at a reopening time of June of 21. Right. It would have been a completely different experience for everybody. Right. Yeah, you were talking earlier about the fact that it's not rest and people don't come out. People don't know how to move forward coming out of it. And if if we had known what that time length was going to be, a lot of us probably would have made plans for what comes next. Sure. And Jeff, if you think about if, if you were still pastoring uh-huh. and not just philosophizing, which, you know, I I, I am so sad 
that philosophy is so elusive for me. <laughs> I, I'll t- I'll, I need to tell you where you are one of the better philosophers that I, that I listened to and one who I actually learned from quite a bit, but go ahead. I'll tell you. Okay. I'll, I'll, <laughs> go ahead. Uh, but it concerns me greatly that church communities for the most part were not able to re-examine how they are creating a community for people to know themselves better, to know God better and to be more Christ-like. And that coming out of this, all they want is what they already wanted. Yep. I think that is the, uh, I think that's a glaring statement about where we're missing the mark mm-hmm. in yep. church. Yep. I mean, my, my candid opinion on this is, is the American church is the problem in, yeah. in a lot of these places. And a lot of our work this last year was we realized that we weren't immune from that, that the model itself needs to be blown up. And so a lot of our work actually over the last three or four months was actually restarting our church without staff. And we no longer do anything with a, with an authority figure with a microphone is the problem in our culture, in my mind. Mm -hmm. And so the more that we can get away from that and push into, let's get every, everyone who is part of the community of faith together and talking, learning from each other, loving each other, meeting each other's needs, having collective goals. Um, these are some of the places that we're stumbling, bumbling, trying to find our footing and, and moving forward. But it's been ridiculously helpful for a person like myself to who the only reason I got into church work was because I wanted a family. And I realized that when I started a church, the one thing I no longer had was a family. I had lots of people who were a family around me and I was excluded because of my job description. Um, and so, but the, it's, we're, we're in, as we've kind of said, and I'm, I don't know what it is about me on this front, but I'm thoroughly ready for a new world and and I'm, we talked about the three types of responses I think off off air of how we're going to wrestle through post covid and I'm I'm firmly in the camp of we don't realize yet that everything changed yeah. and we're going to figure and I think we're going to figure that out here in the next 2 years and it may be very very difficult for for a lot of us and it will um, be easier if we understand that there are nine ways of seeing Yes. Let's uh, talk about that in relationship to fives for a moment. Say the five has tools, skills, brilliances to, to offer the rest of us. Perhaps a very unique. They're going to see take in the world in a very different way. What, what, do, what do fives need to do for the rest of us during this next season? Invent. Ooh, it's a good word. I bet you if we went to D.C. and, and looked at all the patents for people who created something brand new, I bet you a high percentage of those people are fives on the internet. Mm-hmm. They, they were willing to learn all they could about a problem and then learn all they could about how to solve it and then create something that would solve it. Yeah. And I think we need them to invent new tools for us and new ways of gathering from their perspective instead of from the perspective of people who love to gather. Right. Yeah. People who may not come to the table with things that are well thought out and deeply thought about. And I, 
I sort of wish we could put, we could create a, a big job board, no matter where we work. Sure. And say, here's the skill set for ones, here's the skill set for twos, all the way across, sign up for what you want to do and see what happened. I think it would create community merely through the reality that every way of seeing would be valued and a part of moving forward. Yeah. Yeah. Because three sevens and eights can't move back with fours, fives and nines and Mm -hmm. fours, fives and nines can't skip the threshold and just jump on board with whatever the aggressive quick thinkers you know, I, I say all the time, I work with Joel's a seven and Laura's a three, and they just think faster than I do. Mm-hmm. And I, I got to catch up. And that means they got to slow down. Mm. The, I'm going to speak out of both sides of my mouth because uh, I said one of the problems is the authority with the microphone. But actually, the one authority I do want to hear from is the fives. And what I want to hear is unfiltered data. Um, about about where we're at, about who we are, about this. Uh, the here are the real numbers. Some of the things that you know, popular culture, the way news works, they can elevate very singular events in nowhere, New Hampshire, and make that the national conversation. Whereas fives are going to come and say, look across the board, we have four hundred million people, and here are trends. Here are places uh, that that are unhealthy given these standards. And I really want to hear fives engage the conversation more. Me too. And be honored for it. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Because in a culture like ours, oftentimes you demonize the authority in order to gain leverage because you don't know how to deal with data or it's going to take your job if the facts go against your, your opinion. Yeah. Or if you were wrong. Yep. Um, what's one practice that's really invigorating for the heart of a five during this season? Generosity. You want more of it. (laughs) Well, I could, I could do a follow-up question if you want. (laughs) Um, I think the burden on the back of fives is a scarcity mentality. Mm -hmm. And I think when they are called and they know it or, when they extend themselves farther than they planned or when they give from their substance instead of their excess, I think it just awakens all kinds of things in them and they're all life-giving. And if they do that and then think about it properly from a healthy space, then they can say to themselves, you know, I don't have to do this every Tuesday afternoon. But the next time the opportunity arises for me to really be generous, I'm, I'm going to walk into that because it feels like this. And because it follows, for those of us who are Christians, in the way of Jesus the Christ. Mm-hmm. Now, are you, are you talking about like just handing people money? Or what do you mean by generous? I actually, yeah, I actually think... Uh, money, giving money for fives is a cop out often Yeah. for uh, what they had to give time, knowledge, wisdom, you know, money comes with not much vulnerability. Mm-hmm. And so I mean, being generous with your thoughts, with what you know, that, like the, the stuff that Jeff is talking about, be generous with your community about the 
information that you gathered during the last 18 months and about how you have assimilated that and how you can reference the community that you're a part of or the relationship that you're a part of or whatever that is. Mm-hmm. And, and th- there's a growing edge for things. It's, it's interesting, and I, I don't want to go off on a trail about this, but I, I want to say Joe and I have been invited to come be part of a conversation in New York, and the name of it is The Edge of the Rooftop. And when we first got the invitation, I thought, I, I don't want to go to the edge of anything right now. <laughs> like, no, thank you. Yeah. Um, and we're going and we're very excited about it. And it's going to be conversations about what's happening on the edge. Mm-hmm. And they're having authors and poets and it's by invitation only. So I don't quite know how I got there, but I'm thrilled to be going. And I think we've spent an awful lot of our energy keeping ourselves from the edge and hanging back here where it's safe. And I think COVID has blown that up, whether people can acknowledge it or not. Mm-hmm. And we're on the edge of something new and it has to be acknowledged before it can be addressed. Yeah. This is where the uh, one that sounds like liminal space to me. Yeah. Um, but secondarily, this is my philosopher side comes out here where the thing I think that you really have to offer is subjectivity and understanding how our subjectivity interprets the world. That's very philosophically core. It's epistemology. It's how, how do I see the facts out there, filter them, internalize them, have them do something within me. What is that that's going on within me? And then when it is communicated back out again, it's a, that's a very human process. Um, that's a creative process sometimes. That's an emotional process. It's not just cognitive and that, in my mind, describes much of what humanity is presently learning during, you know, uh, the, the number of people who I know who are in counseling and elevate counseling now, has it's not even triple. I mean, it is off the charts how many people are seeking to understand their internal life in a way that had never been spoken of in my circles before. Yeah, exactly. And that is the gift, the awakening gift of the Enneagram, no matter if you take a stupid test and get the wrong number, it's still an awakening gift. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Are there any practices that fives should intentionally stop as they're moving into the future? I think fives overvalue their thinking and they need to stop relying so heavily on thinking, which means they will have to manage their thinking. So a study group, a book club where they only get to pick the book once every 12 months, anything that stretches them beyond the container that they're in would be valuable. It's a good word. But, but the container was valuable too. You, you know, people who got to grow up in a safe container do better than people who didn't. And I like it when we try to come up with metaphors for personality being good for us until it isn't. You know, one is um, if you break your arm, then you need to have a cast on your arm. But if you don't ever take the cast off, then you lose the use of your arm. And I think that is an inadequate metaphor, but that's one of the examples because I don't know a good one. 
Seems like that must be a, a challenge for philosophers to come up with that. But the thing that I believe is that having this personality that we have is necessary, but its value diminishes over a lifetime. And you got to get what's in the container first, but then you got to be willing to move on. And I think that's really harder for some numbers than for others. And I think fives are one of the numbers that it's hard for. In in a way, they they sort of replace a lot of the valuable behavior, actions, interactions with thinking. And like that thinking is really valuable and necessary and good. And when it replaces everything else, it becomes a huge problem. And And learning how to manage it I, I like that idea of managing. It's it's not that you're getting rid of thinking. It's that you're managing it. And, you know, you can't think feelings and have that be effective in a relationship. Right. And you can't think doing. Right. You got to do. Right. And, you know, I, I feel a little uh, awkward because I'm thinking repressed. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, I've got all these things to say about thinking and how you need to do less of it when I need to do more of it. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you're prepared for this, but do you, do you have a word on the InterVarsity uh, author who's writing the book for fives? Uh, you know, I'd rather wait till that comes out, I think. Okay. I, I will tell you this. I think all nine numbers represented themselves well. I think there's something to learn from each of them if people have the patience to spend 40 days reading each number. And if you're going to read the whole reflection series in an evening, that's not the ticket. Right. Well, if you're frantically prepping for a podcast the next day with the author, <laughs> is that okay? <laughs> well, I, go back and read. I, I, I certainly understand doing that. And I understand doing that that way. And I, I, I think I kind of get it, you know, but I, since I edited it, I had to read it differently than that. And I don't think anybody communicates with head and heart both. This is what I'll say about the five author. I don't think anybody communicates better in my whole vision with head and heart than Morgan Harpernickel. She's a visual, you know, she's putting stuff out all the time that is thoughtful and emotional and challenging all at the same time. And she certainly did that in reflecting on her way of being in the world. She didn't give herself a break from the challenges that come with a 40-day time of reflection. That's what I'll say about her. And I admire her greatly. That's an excellent plug. Yeah. Uh, Well, let's move to the sixes. Okay. Uh, How should sixes see and use the Enneagram? You know, I'm um, in a time of believing that there are different seasons of life and different times for um, global, local, community, and everything in between for certain numbers to step up. Mm -hmm. And right now, I think the two numbers that we've needed for the last five years are sixes and nines. Sixes, well, I'll do nines first and then we're going to dive into sixes. Nines 
because they see at least two sides to everything. But sixes, because they're the number that is intuitively concerned about the common good. And if we could get those two personality types to speak up and risk, it would be for the benefit of everybody. And they are the two numbers that are the least likely to speak up, unless it's counterphobic sixes. Would you talk about risk with those two? Um, it's it's because I think that's the key word there. Yeah, uh, I can quickly say about nines they just don't want to risk conflict. They just hate it and no risk there. For sixes, because of the misunderstanding between anxiety and fear, I get it that fear is the appropriate passion or sin to be associated with that number. And the issue, in my estimation, the problem is anxiety, not fear, because sixes handle fearful situations like a champ. Mm. Mm-hmm. Anxiety is the problem. Yeah. And anxiety in a culture like ours prior to COVID and certainly now, anxiety is falling on us all the time. You know, pride is the sin for twos. And just to make sure everybody knows what the definition is, it's an inability or unwillingness to acknowledge one's own needs and suffering while tending to the needs of other people. And I have to struggle with pride coming at me from outside of me, maybe once a week. Sixes are inundated with information that is designed to create anxiety and fear. And it's literally everywhere. So I don't know how they're walking around, frankly. (laughs) If I had to face my sin 15 times a day, I'd just go to bed. (laughs) why do you think nines are so tired (laughs) (laughs) because there's conflict everywhere (laughs) so I I think that I don't even know what the question is anymore but here's the next thing I want to say you know I kind of get lost when I'm talking to you guys I don't know if it's because you're such good listeners you just let me talk and then I don't quite know what I was supposed to say and you know all that but the, the next thing I want to say is I think the very best thing sixes could do is keep a journal. And, you know, they, they're afraid somebody else is going to read them and all that. So find somebody you trust and say, if something happens to me, burn these immediately and journal. Because if they would commit the time to journaling all the stuff that they're anxious about for a month, and then at the end of the month, go back and look at, what of those things occurred, it would be Mm life-changing. And I don't know how to break the pattern of walking with anxiety, which is fear of possible future events. And whatever breaks that anxious cycle, even for, uh, you know, two days out of five, I think is the place that sets the table for creativity and for sixes to teach other people to be as willing as they are to be part of a whole instead of the star. Just to speak into that, it always strikes me that this, the, the, the first step towards disintegrating 
and the first step towards integrating. And we use that in a different way, obviously, than what's published. But really getting healthy, it starts there. It's, it starts with the heart's message over you moving away from all the types have fears, but sixes need to go to their resource. They need to go to the living God. They need to go to the place where they can hear you are safe. You know, I, I know for myself, when I know and take the step that God is all ordering all things, that frees me in a way that nothing else can. And especially during this last season, the world is on fire. And you had said it earlier, I think it might have been off air in terms of how ones have reacted to um, everything. And it's spot on. I, I am screaming my head off about toxic bad leadership and what needs to change immediately given the casualties that that we're seeing and I need to step out of that space and I step out of that space in a healthy way by entrusting myself my heart my mind to the ordering purposes of Christ around me and that that when I can get there and that's super difficult for me but when I can get there, that's the step. I imagine it's similar for sixes. The the you can't can you know only God is allowing your heart to continue beating and your brain to continue working and and you experience grace every second of the day and trust everything else as well. Seems to me to be a worthy place to go. I think in response to that, I, I I think it's really important that we put on the table that because we talk about fear, then sixes quite naturally believe that the counter to that is courage. And so they're always trying to muster up courage Mm -hmm. and what they need is faith, not courage. Yeah. Faith in something that's bigger than they are. Mm -hmm. Yep. And when it's similar to, to writing the journal, if you're able to get there, you will experience the power and reservoir that's actually there and it will build on itself so that it's easier next time. I suppose that's how habits work. Well, I, I think uh, habit. I agree with you, but habits can also keep us from even taking a step toward that. Yes. Yeah. You know that that whole idea of why do I need to work on balancing thinking, feeling, and doing? I got this far with feeling and doing. People mm. think I think. Yeah, I mean, and, and there again is the value of the enneagram of exposing that yeah. that can work for you. And it will also be the thing that's gonna gonna eventually hurt you in your relationships and in your future. Sure, the best part of you is the worst part of you. There it is. Final thoughts on that, Teach? Well, in part this is also part of why so many people come to the Enneagram or or find the value of the Enneagram after significant trauma or crisis or for three's failure or whatever. Like when when the things that you're doing break then you have to find something different that works. Yeah. yeah. Liminal space there. Perhaps. <laughs> perhaps. <laughs> well, and thinking about sixes, we, um, the, the, one of the ways that we understand sixes, I, I, I also, I understand that, that fear fits, but, but my experience with sixes and, and with studying this material, it seems like we're also missing out on doubt and self-doubt being a significant part of of what that like core passion or or sin for sixes is and on the flip side of of the journaling technique like when when you write down the things that you're afraid of the things that you're anxious about 
and look back on that and it none of those things came to pass you might start to gain some control over that that unproductive thinking space but also when you write down the things that worked and you look back on that you start to build a little bit more uh the value f- that you need in the face of fear is faith. The value that you need in the face of doubt is trust. And so I love that you brought that up because I actually believe that there's a whole thing we're not talking about that we should be in relationship to sixes. And it's a a tad lengthy. First of all, I believe that they are brushing their teeth in the morning thinking uh, at a very deep level, I cannot trust myself. Mm-hmm. And so it uh, self-doubt is accurate and overused. Yeah. And not trusting myself, uh, for sixes to, to be in that reality, what it means if you don't trust yourself is that you have to rely on a belief system that means you're trusting authorities somewhere else. And the reason that it's so dangerous, Jeff, for all the power to be in the person who has the microphone is because if there are more sixes than any other number, and you guys know I think that is true and not everybody agrees with me, if that is true, then that means that the people who are sitting at the feet of the leaders with the microphone, when they don't trust themselves or when something goes awry, they attach themselves to belief systems and then when the belief system doesn't prove to be true, then where do you go? Right. Then where do you stand if all you have is courage yeah. and you don't have faith? Yeah. I, I um, think we, we've got some significant challenges ahead in terms of addressing the integrity of belief systems mm-hmm. and whether or not we're willing to embrace all that they hold or are we instead going to divide again and again and again and again and again to defend this narrow little belief system that we finally have given ourselves to so that we know we're on the inside and other people are on the outside, which seems to be what we're looking for. How could there possibly be an inside if there are no outsiders? Right. That defies everything that I understand from the gospels. Y'all think I should go into preaching? I think, I think, you I think you're already there probably. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> no, that, that, that has been one of the big things that I've noted. A lot of us have noted, especially for like people with stories like TJ and, and I is where we're clearly critiquing the tribe on our end. We are easily dismissed, demonized, kicked out ridiculed and it's the social pressure around beliefs that's real interesting right mm-hmm. right now that if you if you challenge some of the the heart what the what is perceived to be foundational matters they are often aren't but they are perceived to be foundational matters then you know you're anathema your demons are speaking through you clearly you know it's like something yeah. like that yeah. have y'all ever heard the story about our youngest son bj our, our BJ, who we call Beach, just like you call TJ. That's He's, true. Yep. <laughs> um, he uh, went to a Catholic school until he became part of the Texas Boys Choir in third grade. And um, uh, Sister 
Lillianne came out to the car with him when he was, you know, early in second grade. And she said, James has had a very hard day today. And Joe said, well, what's wrong, sister? And she said, well, he uh, is struggling with the fact that we have mass on Fridays and he can't go to communion and receive the elements. He can only receive a blessing. And Joe held his tongue and his temper and his response and said that we would talk to BJ about it. And we were driving home and Joe said to BJ, what happened? And he said, well, I was sad and I didn't want just a blessing. I didn't want to go down for a blessing. And so I didn't go. And then Sister Lillianne said that I have to follow in line with the children and I have to go get a blessing and that I can't receive communion because in their church, they really and truly believe that's Jesus. And in our church, we don't. And BJ said to his dad, and I just said to her, oh, sister, if that was really and truly Jesus, he would say, BJ, get on down here. (laughs) And I've been thinking since, you know, if six-year-olds can get it, surely the rest of us can. Right. Yeah. I think uh, speaking of uh, stories in the gospel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This sounds familiar to me. Well, I love that that Sister Lillian, is that her name? Yeah. Yeah. She said that to uh, the father of, right. of BJ, who has been on both sides of that discussion. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Who was a priest till he was 40. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is perhaps navigating way off track but it, it this is something the church needs to learn is it's not your table yeah this is the table of the lord jesus and he invites everybody that's hungry to come to it and if you posture yourself as an obstacle to that table i would not want to pick that fight with the guy whose table you're restricting people from he says quite a bit about that in uh, well it's the last sermon in matthew if you want to look it up um do we talk about what sixes should in- intentionally stop? <laughs> uh, kind of. I can move to the next question then. Uh, do, the Enneagram book on sixes also hasn't been published yet. Do you have any anything to say about the author uh, as, as we're weighing that, that coming out this fall? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the first thing I want to answer is about sixes. And I think sixes must stop selling themselves short. I think sixes need to really evaluate whether or not they're going to trust somebody else's authority over their own thinking or their own gut response or their own way of being in the world. And so all that could be summed up, I think, in don't dismiss yourself. Don't do that. You know, Roxanne Howe Murphy says that nines erase themselves. And I think sixes erase their own wisdom. Hmm. And they need to stop doing that. Would you talk real quick about American culture on that front? Because that's where I see that most is is someone is in charge of the organization and we're moving forward. This sucker is going to get bigger. We're going to scale. We're going to make this a wonderful, wonderful place. Uh, Very successful. And the voice of caution is the six who then is dismissed or told that they're just an anchor or, you know, et cetera. That seems to me where I see that most obviously in our culture, I suppose. I think so. And, uh, you know, I even say, in all honesty, 
Sometimes sixes ask so many questions you want to hurt them. <laughs> and I'm speaking from experience, actually. Um, my my wife is a six, and we've had that conversation. I, I bet you have. Yeah. I, I think if sixes are willing to get nine questions down to two, the best two, Ooh, and yeah. everybody else's responsibility to hear the question, think about it, and perhaps respond if they have a helpful response. Hmm. And not close up and roll your eyes and go, oh, here we go again. Yeah. So, you know, I teach with storytelling. So here's a story. The trustees at a church, we were, were going to re-carpet or lay carpet in the Sunday school rooms. And every Sunday school classroom got to pick their own carpet. So I have this, you know, the thing you get that has the carpet. You pick one from the top and one from a row, and that's your carpet. And I had important stuff to teach. I didn't want to pick carpet, didn't care. So I hold up the thing, and I have everybody vote. Which one of these do you want? Great. Majority wants this one. Which one of these in the vertical line do you want? Great. That's the one. And that's the carpet. And at the end of all that, a really good friend of ours who's a six, Joe's best friend since high school seminary's wife, came up to me in the sanctuary after we had come out of Sunday school and done all that you do to get there and said, hey, when are we going to pick the carpet? I don't want to miss the time when we choose the carpet. And I said, what? We just did that. You voted. We just did it. She said, I thought that was a joke. She said, don't you think we need bigger samples that we can hold up against the wall? The answer is no. I think we need to talk about Sunday school lesson and let the carpet be. Right. That's so disrespectful of the six. Who takes the task seriously? And if we don't want to let them take it seriously, then don't invite them to participate. (laughs) That's a great last line, by the way. Because if you... If you pick the wrong color, there's consequences to that. If you pick the wrong carpet, there's even like there's serious consequences to that. And sixes are thinking about that. And that is very valuable. And, and, and to just let the majority choose. Majority doesn't know what they're talking about. They don't or care. They don't know what I they didn't want. even care. <laughs> right. Right? But here's the deal. Sixes are so loyal that they aren't in the group that leaves churches over the carpet. Right. That's why they take their vote seriously. Right. People aren't, churches are not dividing over the gospel. They're not dividing over the Sermon on the Mount. They're not even dividing over sacraments. They're dividing over all the other stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there it is. Foundational issues that aren't foundational. There you go. And that, that also points at... Sixes devaluing themselves is more about the thoughts, the the value that they bring to the table, not just about the work that they do that nobody else will do. That's right. For no credit. Right. For no, nothing except being taken for granted. Right. Yep. Right. Yeah. We, we need the thoughts that six have, not just the toilets to be cleaned. That's right. Or the cookies for vacation Bible school. Just right. Right. We'll figure that out. That's fine. We, we need your, your planning and your preparation and, and your 
care about the quality of the carpet because that's going to last for probably 30 or 40 years. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, what I heard there was with all the types, everyone has a superpower, but it needs to be moderated. And when you're in discussion, you need to balance that contribution. If I go full one into an environment, I clearly can nitpick things to death and ostracize everybody at the table. And I'm sure everybody can has that problem. Moderation, moderation is a great good. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about some sevens. So let me just tell you about Tara Beth. She's the six yeah. author. Yeah, do. Sorry. Um, you know, my new theory of the last maybe four years is that there are some people who are either phobic or counterphobic, but actually most sixes are on a continuum. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I would say about Tara Beth is she is on a continuum and she knows how to articulate that. That's not the mm-hmm. language she uses, but she is articulate enough in what she shares through the daily reflections that if you're a phobic six or a counterphobic six, you will find that you can connect to her and connect to her writing. And I think that's a a particular gift because sometimes teachers only teach to one or the other because that's how they know our writers are only writing from one place or another because that's where they are. So I I would really like to plug that in her very good reflective work about sixness. I have a side question for you on on this because there's there's the balance when talking about subtypes of one I, we we've talked about the wisdom you shouldn't engage sub, subtypes till after five years. So by the way, listener, if you haven't been in this five years, just skip five minutes ahead. On the on the flip side, one of the things that has been most helpful for me with the relationships with people in my family recently has been understanding their relational energy through subtypes because it identifies how they feel most comfortable engaging. And we're going to likely do something on this in the fall, but I don't know if you could speak to that in terms of pointing us in the right direction in terms of how you would read that. Well, what I would say is that I think the big piece to to be mindful of, if you guys are going to engage it as soon as the fall, is people are probably still embracing a new subtype and don't even know what it is. Sure. Uh, Well, you think, is it, is it then that they're discovering their subtype, their new subtype? Because you've talked about that, about going from one to another, but not going back. Yeah. Yeah. You know, when Joe had his heart attack, I was teaching in another city. And by the time I got home, I'd been social all my life. Mm -hmm. And in that three hour drive from Austin to Dallas, I switched from social to sexual and it was such a significant shift that uh, we ended up having to go to therapy to deal with it. Mm -hmm. It's a big, big deal. People who aren't doing Enneagram work, who are just gathering Enneagram information. Yeah. Fall into and give into the temptation to use it as an excuse for behavior. Mm -hmm. And if you add social, sexual, self-preserving, one of the three, on top of your Enneagram number, then you have all kinds of new excuses for bad behavior. Mm-hmm. And that is generally how it's used by people who aren't ready for it. Yeah. And if you're ready for it, it is profound wisdom that is a game changer that is dynamic, not mm-hmm. stable. 
It's dynamic stability because you may not always be that subtype. And I don't think that's been talked about much. And I think coming out of COVID, it's going to be talked about a lot. Mm. Bang. Thank you. Me, my, my encouragement as a father to both my kids is to when engaging folks in authority is to push it into their subtype and they're, they're both sexual subtypes and to say the more that you can get people who you need to communicate with one-on-one, you're setting yourself up for success. And I don't for know, sure. that's, that's just been real, that, that has been a game changer for us because it's normally the case that they're, they have a team of teachers. We have, so my, my oldest is on the autism spectrum and the, having the team of teachers lined up is actually the problem uh, sometimes because they they're not comfortable in that space. Anyway. Sure. You know, when I used to do uh, one-on-one sessions or work with couples, Tell me. Um, the, the thing that showed up more often than not in working with couples is that it was a subtype problem more than it was a number problem. Yes. But if they didn't really know their number, they couldn't have the subtype awareness to have an effective conversation. And that may, yeah. And again, showcases the... If you're going to get into this, this is why this is actually my take on why tests are bad is they don't set you up for this is going to be a long term thing. It's you can't jump in and think that you've gone anywhere. So if when you're ready, let's jump in and do the real work. And yeah, and that's journey, exactly it. Yeah, it's a journey toward wholeness. Bang. Well, let's move to uh, let's move to the sevens. All right. This is our last number here. Um how should sevens see the Enneagram and use the Enneagram well? They should see it as more than interesting and entertaining. And they should use it first to understand themselves and to accept their propensity for reframing. Mm-hmm. Because that's a deficit in exploring Enneagram wisdom. Because you can't look at your own life enough to see the full range of your behavior and the effect it has on other people. Mm. We have a friend uh, who's a podcaster, mutual friend, Suzanne, with you and you and I. He, he lost his mom recently and lost two friends, and it comes out in his podcast all the time. And though that's very difficult, I've been so proud of him in terms of being able to move in those spaces, but it's, it's been unveiling for me in my, in our, in our conversation with Joel, when he was on our podcast, uh, last winter, both of those are two men very aware of their type. And when it's time to talk, they were able to articulate in ways I've never heard before. And that maybe because sevens are so good at reframing the inner life of a seven, and it's been super instructive. Yeah, I I say consistently, I'll never be able to speak for another number the way they can speak for themselves. Mm -hmm. And, you know, uh, um, Joel is our son and we love him as we do all of our children so very much. And we've learned so much from him. But we, along with he and we, have learned the most from his engagement with things that he can't reframe. Mm -hmm. And I think unless sevens are taught that they reframe things and that they live primarily with a half range of emotion, how would you see that? 
If nobody told you that, yeah. how would you ever see that when you're so, you have so many feelings about so many things, mm-hmm. how would you ever know that you're feeling repressed and that you have a half range of feelings if somebody didn't show that to you? Yeah. And then I, I think more than any other number, there's not support from the other eight numbers for sevens to experience transformation. We want them to stay just like they are. Right. Fun. Right. Yep. Yeah. It's like, what happened to you? What happened to you? You used to be so much fun. We used to love to have you at parties. It was so great. You were always the life of the party. Right. Or people walk up to him in the middle of the party and say, you know, things here are really dry, not kind of moving along. Can't you do something to liven things up a little? Mm-hmm. People very seldom say, talk to me about what you're thinking about in terms of why life is like it is. So can you speak to that for a second for me? Cause that actually is how I engage sevens and I maybe 10% of the time I get something in return. Cause that, that is where I feel most comfortable. Well, that's because you share a line with sevens on the Enneagram. Yep. So, you know, there's something else there to go after. Sure. And from their perspective, it's because they don't have any practice doing that. Like they're <laughs> thinking, what do you, what do you want? Right. That's not what people want from me. Right. Well, and so often they're they're unpracticed and they're unaware in part because they haven't experienced the things that force them to see the other half of the range. Yeah, I agree with you, TJ. And Luke, our friend Luke Norsworthy says, you know, I may walk into the room with humor and a story, but I have a lot more than that mm. if there's an audience for it. Oh, that's a good way to phrase that. That's yeah. not exactly how he says it, but he says it better, of course, because he is the seven telling the story. But he essentially says, I lead with humor, but I got a whole lot behind it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's true for all of us. I lead with, is there anything I can do to help? But that doesn't mean I want to stay and do the dishes. Right. It's your it's your connecting point. It's your affect. It's, yeah. it's, yeah. that's, that's, this is what you have to offer. It's what you lead with. Right. And always will. That'll yes. always be the lead. You know what? I haven't put that in terms of, I, we've really done a lot of study here the last year on affect and coping styles and had, haven't heard it framed like that. That's where you lead. I've always thought of it. As, Here's how you connect, but that's a, that's, a, that's worthwhile. Good. Well, Suzanne, what's one uh, invigorating practice for the heart of a seven? Sevens don't like this. So um, I know I'm heading into unpopular territory. They need to spend time in the presence of pain that will likely not be healed while they're present. Yeah. You know, one of the reasons, I bet y'all don't even know this movie. It's so old, but uh, Robin Williams was in a movie the title of which was Patch Adams. And there's no doubt that he's playing a seven character. And there's no doubt that he was a seven on the Enneagram as far as I know. And he found out that if he could stay with people who were in pain as his persona, he could see progress. Mm -hmm. But he had to stay in relationship to the person and to the pain of dementia in order to do it. And our culture doesn't support that in any way. Right. Mm. 
And I think it's true for all of us that we have learned very little from success. And I haven't learned anything of lasting value that didn't involve pain. I think this whole idea in Christianity of a prosperity gospel set us back a hundred years because there is one pattern that I believe is true. And that is living and dying and rising and you don't get to skip one. Mm. And we have denominations who focus on just living mm -hmm. and denominations who put a heavy focus on dying and a narrative for rising that is by its very nature ill-informed right? because you can't know what it's going to be. Right. <laughs> and to try to create another pattern is just foolishness. The gospel's, aren't promising prosperity. They're promising living and dying and rising a right. hundred times a day. If this podcast is not the perfect metaphor for living and dying and rising, <laughs> right? <laughs> for those of you who don't understand, we've cut at least an hour and a half of technical glitches so far. <laughs> I have a question for you on this front. It seems to me that Christianity can be its worst when it's all about you and your personal salvation. There, that is important, of course, but it, that's, I think, oftentimes the misstep, and it leads to prosperity gospel. It leads to everything's about me. I don't know why you don't see that. And it exerts itself as a political force right now in terms of it's all about me, it's all about me sort of stuff. The Enneagram, I imagine, has that temptation for it as well in terms of I come to the material and I realize this is my number, and then it becomes all about me. Is there, I know that this is part of your work, but I would love a clean answer. What does it look like for the Enneagram to be about us and not just narrowly defined as this is this is about me and my my own journey my shortest answer is our daughter who's an eight called me one morning and said mom i i've come to a new realization i don't think the golden rule applies to eights well you know that sounds like something an eight would say right <laughs> so i said yeah, well tell me tell me more about that and she said I treat people exactly like they want to, like I want to be treated and it never goes well. Mm -hmm. And I say that once you know the Enneagram, you don't have to be deep into study, but once you know about the nine ways of seeing at that moment, it becomes your responsibility to be more compassionate and it becomes your responsibility to treat other people like they want to be treated, not like you want to be treated. How do you do this as as someone who I'm I'm sure doesn't want to type another person and steal that from them, but you're in a relationship with somebody who you don't know their type. I'm sure you're, you strike me as a very compassionate, socially intelligent person in general, but loving another person whose type you're not aware of. What's the what do you what wisdom do you have there? Listen, just listen, just shut up and listen. I'm not talking to you, Jeff. Sure. Talking to the world. And, but and sometimes Jeff too. <laughs> <laughs> here, here's what I think about that. I think if somebody gives themselves to stance work, it doesn't take too long to figure out what stance somebody's in. Are, are you comfortable naming a person's stance and, and simply, and I mean, you're not typing them necessarily, but you're engaging them in terms of the energy coming forth from them? I'm comfortable telling uh, hospital chaplains that I think with three room visits, 
five minutes each and uh, well thought out questions, they can know what stance they're dealing with. Yeah. And, and, and meet them in that space. Yep. Yeah. Something that, like, you go into it intending to hold it loosely. Sure. Yeah. You're not making any statements about anything. Right. But you can figure out if what they need from you is the question, what are you thinking? What are you feeling? What would you like for us to do? Yeah. A hospital administrator uh, who was inviting me in to teach uh, residents, hospital residents, said that one of the most powerful stories ever was that the doctor came in and the resident was following and there was a nurse already in the room and they asked all these medical questions and then they did all the little blood pressure and the temperature and all of that. And then after all of that was done, the doctor, the intern and the nurse left the room and this administrator stayed behind and said, Mr. Johnson, is there anything else you need? And he said, if you could just hand me a pajama top, my mother taught me to never talk to other people bare chested. And I'm so uncomfortable. I don't know what questions they ask me. And that's a whole basis for teaching medical personnel how to take care of the person, right? Mm -hmm. And not just going after for uh, the information I need because I have to make rounds and I've got things to do. Mm -hmm. Mm. Slipping back to the sevens, is there a practice that sevens should focus on intentionally stopping as they exit COVID here? I would suspect that COVID has been challenging enough for sevens, both as their number and as aggressive numbers, that they already know that there's just a whole lot that you can't reframe. But I think they're going to have to be very careful not to come out of COVID, falling right back into that pattern of, you know, I've been trapped down in this hole with all of this fear and all this stuff for all this time. And now I'm back to, it can be this and it can be this and it can be this and we have to make it this. And I don't think we know what it can be yet. Mm. And I don't think covering with reframing is gonna be helpful. So that requires something that I think all aggressive numbers need and that's patience. Mm. And for sevens, impatience can look like and feel like creativity. Mm. And I think the two need to be differentiated and only the seven can do that because creative solutions are required and nobody is more creative than sevens have the potential to be. And the reason for that is because sevens know where systems overlap. So literally Joel carried us in LTM through COVID Mm -hmm. because he kept paying attention to what we could do instead of being focused on what we couldn't do. And so he got our family together on the front porch of the Micah Center, and we talked about all our numbers, and it kept people connected to us. Right. Yeah. He figured out a way, and most numbers were saying, man, what are we going to do? Yeah. yeah. So there's a, there's a creative element that is available to sevens if they don't give in to reframing. Yeah, that's a good word. You got any thoughts, Teach? I'm curious if this is something that can be practiced without being catalyzed into it. 
like we said, the most of the the sevens we know that can do, that can be in grief, that can acknowledge and and experience and speak from the other half of life's experiences, they can do that because they had something push them into that space. And and I'm wondering for those sevens who have not lost a loved one or gone through a significant depressive episode or or any of these things that that push sevens through that, is this something that can be can be practiced and nurtured without being forced into it? I it's problematic that reframing is the default for sevens. Mm-hmm. It's problematic that we like that in sevens. Mm-hmm. And I have a new way of a new hope for sevens. And it is the work of Pauline Boss, who is a family systems expert. And uh, she wrote a book titled Ambiguous Loss. And we all can benefit from engaging with the reality of loss that we haven't named. And it's a way through reading that book or somebody teaching that book or us sharing ideas about that we got from that book. It's a way that sevens can walk into the deep end, starting in the shallow end Hmm. with the losses in their lives that weren't breathtaking, but that were lost nonetheless. And there is an enormous amount of ambiguous loss available for every human being right now. Right. I highly recommend that book and her work. And it's good for every number for different reasons, but it's good for sevens because they get to think their way into it and live their way into it without being forced into it, which makes it easier to receive. Yeah. Bang. Thoughts on the seven author? Uh, Gideon's book is out. Yes, it is. Um, I have several things to say uh, on Gideon's behalf. I think that we need to be mindful of cultural difference. He is Chinese, but he grew up in Canada. So he's from Canada. And another thing that I think is very helpful in terms of uh, Gideon's book, and with no shame, I say, it'd be great if people listen to the Enneagram Journey podcast with Joel and Gideon and me Mm. as a backdrop for... Gideon's book. I think I want to be very careful about this because I don't know about other Asian cultures. So I'm going to talk about my experience with people who are Korean, Vietnamese, and Chinese. And I have the most experience with Vietnamese and then Korean and then Chinese. And so what I'm mindful of and what I've learned from them is that there is perceived difference based on looks that isn't present with Italians or Germans. Mm -hmm. And the perceived difference, if we're not careful, sets us up for misreading. The other thing I would say is every person I've taught, we have a woman on our board of directors who's Korean, Every, everybody I have, con- my guy who's been doing my nails for 18 years is Vietnamese. And one of my pastors, actually, in the, that he teaches me so much. And there are two things that are missing in the West. 
and they both have to do with care for your parents and their way of living in the culture that they share with you. And they're very protective of not wanting to dishonor or offend in any way. And yet many of them feel at least once, if not twice and three times removed from the value system that they grew up with Hmm. involving. We don't talk about these things in public and we don't do all this. And so I would say that I think Gideon and Christine, who wrote the four book, both were very brave in what they were willing to share Mm -hmm. and in what it might cost them with their parents. Mm -hmm. And I would like for that to be received as the added gift that it is in their willingness to be honest with their readers about 40 days walking in their shoes. I didn't know where you were going with that. And then the punchline hit and I was like, oh, that's crushing. <laughs> that's, that's so good. Yeah, I reading through Gideon's book, that is not a perspective that I thought about at all until this moment because I have a completely different relationship with what I'm willing to put out in the world about my parents. Yeah. They risked a lot. Yeah. And... Gideon was very honest about saying, don't make assumptions about me because I'm Chinese. Mm-hmm. I grew up in Canada. Right. I live in Austin, Texas. Don't assume. And I asked him on the podcast, he talked about how many people stare at him for a while in a coffee shop. And then they come over and say, so where are you from? And I, I'm somebody who would do that. Sure. That's Suzanne Stabile to a T. <laughs> You're building relationship, right? It used to be Suzanne Stabile. So I said to him, what question would you like for us to ask you? And it is a range of, tell me about yourself. Tell me, you know, ask a question that doesn't begin with all the assumptions that you made Mm. about him being from somewhere else. It's, uh, it, it was, is continuing to teach me. Man, I got so much to learn. I'm so old, guys, and I have so much to learn. <laughs> I think that's the I, mark of wisdom, right? I don't know about that. I have two things uh, on this that I'm curious for. One, uh, I watched uh, the the fantastic Ken Burns documentary on um, Frank Lloyd Wright yesterday. Did more in his 80s than uh, everything prior. And very, very interesting uh, about an artist who has lots to contribute and how their patterns work at that, that point in time, just brilliant and worth, worth picking up. Second, um, I lost my mom a year and a half ago and I have, I'm, I was looking for wisdom on this. The more that I've gotten into the Ingram recently, the more that my parents struggles, I come from a broken home. I have all sorts of you know fractures. The more that I'm seeing their missteps in a different light that I never saw because I was a kid and all the rest. Do you have wisdom for those of us who can't communicate with, with our folks anymore about such things, but we see, oh, when that happened, you actually were making a devastating choice. You know what I mean? And, and, there's, no, and there's no way to, to process that with them. I think you process it in their honor by telling the stories to other people who may be going through the same thing. Mm. Don't rewrite history. And at the same time, understand 
that the way you saw it and the way they saw it is for sure different. Right. The greatest gift we have to offer one another is our stories. And stories don't have to be dishonoring. They have to be honest to be honoring. Mm -hmm. And we tend, you as a one especially, tend to have lots of boundaries around what it's okay to talk about and what it's not okay to talk about because it wouldn't be right. Ones grow up with, you know, we need to have family secrets. That That's the appropriate thing to do. And family secrets are devastating. All you have to do is say, I realize that this is my perception of what happened. And here's my experience as it might be helpful to person A, Q, Z. And so I don't think it's a big, I'm going to tell my whole story. I think it's, I'm going to be willing to tell what I am now learning about and from my childhood to somebody for whom that might be helpful. And I'm going to know that my parents' best selves would want me to. Mm. It's the same thing as like first learning that there are nine different ways of seeing. It's that the person across the table from me sees the world in a completely different way from the way that I do. And looking back on the decisions that my parents made in my childhood for whatever reason, I saw it a particular way, but but their experience was actually very different from mine, not only because they're older and they're like they were parenting, not not being parented and and or going through divorce or whatever things that that they were experiencing it. They were experiencing it from a completely different perspective and starting to see that like not only that they made decisions in a different way, but but they actually saw the situation differently. Like that's an expansion of the fact that there are nine ways of seeing. Sure. Henry Allen says love always wounds. And the reason it always wounds is because you cannot give to somebody something that you did not receive, even if they need it. Mm. I feel like anything that I'm going to add at this point is going to detract. And you've given us an enormous amount of extra time, which we are exceedingly grateful for. And it is always a delight to be with you. Um, right back at you. Well, you got anything else? Uh, any, any closing thoughts, either one of you, on the on the head triad? I have one. Thinking is one third of what you need to make your way in the world. It's mm. a good word. Yeah. I have nothing to add to that. Well, we're going to sign off. Friends, it would mean the world to us if you take two seconds and give us some stars and a review on your podcasting platform of choice. You can find all the links to all of our stuff at aroundthecircle.org. And the shout-outs on Twitter and Instagram are always appreciated. But the best thing you can do is share this episode with somebody you love, preferably somebody in the head triad who is looking for new rhythms as they enter this new season. Uh, you got anything else, Teach? I got nothing. He's DJ Wilson. He's officially awesome. She's Suzanne Stabile. She's a reservoir of wisdom and grace. Thank you. Hey, friends, who you aren't isn't interesting. Be who you are. That's where the gold is. Morning will come burning.